Well, good evening. Good evening. How is everyone? You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude, where we've been studying the last couple weeks. Actually, I believe two weeks. In the book of Jude, we have been talking about the enemies of the faith. The theme of this book, to contend for the faith. And as we contend for our faith in Christ, we realize if we're going to contend, then we're in a war. If we're going to contend, then there is a battle, there is an enemy. And as we contend for our faith, there are certain things that are essential. And one of the things that Jude realizes, you have to know who your enemy is. One of the most difficult and challenging things in any conflict is to properly identify your enemy. You need to know who he is, what he looks like, how to recognize him. All of these things are essential to contending for the faith. So Jude has already begun to compare the enemies of the faith to three examples from the past, which we looked at last week. Uh, We looked at the children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness and died out in one generation. Uh, Then we looked at the angels who who left their position of authority and abandoned their home. And we looked at the fallen angels and the things that took place before the flood, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, which took place after the flood, but Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction was God's judgment against perversion, sexual immorality. And so you had a rebellion, sexual immorality, and unbelief. And these were the three sins that Jude looked at and said, hey, these are accounts from Jewish history, from mankind's history, that point out to us the way that these enemies of the faith behave themselves, what they're also guilty of. Now, this evening, we pick it up in verse 11. And now he begins to charge the enemies of the faith with the same sins as three ungodly individuals from the past. So again, once again, we're going back into the past of Scripture. We're going back, we're looking at the Bible. Jude is bringing us back to the Old Testament and pointing out three individuals. Remember, we we talked about three particular scenarios or or accounts from history, biblical history last week. This week, it's three individuals. And let's read it in verse 11. Woe to them, Jude says, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we commit to you this evening, and we ask that you would just continue to bless this evening, bless our children who are having their Calvary kids this evening, and may they have a wonderful time of fellowship and encouragement. But may we, as we are here now in your word, know that you desire to share with us your word, that you desire to encourage us from your word, and you desire to instill your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you, but that we might also stand for the truth that we might preach the gospel in love, but preach the truth and contend for the faith. We ask that you do this work in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been introduced to three characters, three villains, if you will, from the Old Testament in just this one verse. And we start with Cain. I think he is probably the most well-known of the three. Everyone knows this account pretty much. The Cain and Abel, the account of how Cain killed his brother. And so I am going to go through this as a summary and not read through the scripture from Genesis. But if 
I can encourage you, in Genesis chapter 4, starting right at the beginning of the chapter, but especially verses 3 through 16, you will get this account that I'm summarizing for you in detail. The way of Cain, we're going to learn about the way of Cain, the era of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. Now, the way of Cain. Cain disobeyed God, and he took his brother's life. So obviously, now we're talking about murder. And it may seem like a rather extreme charge to make against the enemies of the faith. But when you think about it, it really isn't. Now, I'm not going to suggest that every enemy of the faith would necessarily take the life of a person of faith. But there are certainly plenty of people out there who hate us that much. Uh, You would be naive not to think that the world is filled with evil, demonically possessed people who would think that killing Christians is just sport. We know of whole nations, governments in our world even today that think nothing of taking the lives of our brothers and sisters. We, we see what's happening in Afghanistan at the moment. We, we've seen what's happened in China. We've seen the things that have taken place in Iran and Iraq. And, and it hasn't been that long ago that we were familiar with ISIS and Al-Qaeda and these groups that literally murdered Christians. But more appropriately, you need to realize that when people attack our faith, what they're really trying to do is destroy us. And what Cain did to Abel is what the enemy wants to do to us. If not really physically murder us, certainly take us out. Destroy our lives. So the way of Cain is that which is attacking your brother, attacking your sister, attacking another human being, and trying to destroy them. And that, I think you can easily see, is a great application for the enemies of the faith today. Now we're told in 1 John chapter 3, Verse 12, and I do want to read this. We studied this a couple of months ago. John said, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. So, you know, John talks about Cain as well. Cain comes up a number of times in the scripture, not too many, but one of the things we know is it was the first murder. And so it was the first murder, Abel's the first martyr. Cain belonged to Satan. You can say that because John tells us he belonged to the evil one. He didn't belong to God. He wasn't one of God's children. Before the flood, there were basically two groups of people after the garden and before the flood. And pretty much is the same today. But back then there were those that were evil and those that were righteous. The righteous were not perfect. The righteous were sinners. But they had a relationship with God that was based on faith and sacrifice. Faith in God and sacrifice for their sins. This is well documented. Animal sacrifices go back to the very first sin. For after Adam and Eve sinned and they were expelled from the garden... It says that God provided them with the skin of animals. Where do those skins come from? Animals were put to death and sacrifices were made in order to cover man and woman. And that was the first time sacrifices were made, certainly not the last. And so the sacrificial system was introduced to mankind to teach mankind that blood covers sin. As the book of Hebrews says, without the Uh, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. 
This is a principle that leads us to Christ and teaches us the importance of the cross. But at this time, this is very early on in man's history. Cain belonged to Satan. He, he belongs to the evil one. And Abel is obedient. And his obedience to God rebuked Cain's disobedience to God. You see, his doing what was right made Cain feel convicted. And I've shared this with you before, and you really need to open up your heart to this truth. The reason the world hates you and hates Jesus, the reason the world hates anyone who would do what's right and serve God, is because our serving God convicts them that they're not serving God. They don't want to see what serving God looks like because then in their hearts, in their consciences, they're convicted. And they don't like to be convicted. You make them look bad. Now, that's not really true, but that's how they feel. So that conviction is something they don't want to feel. It's something they don't want to know. And it's why they don't want to hear the Bible and why they don't want Christians praying and why they don't want uh, anyone in school uh, talking about spiritual things. And it's because the more we preach the truth of God's word, the more convicted those that disobey it are. And that's exactly what happened to Cain. He looks over, sees his brother. By the way, I'm sure at this point, Abel and Cain had many brothers and sisters. We're just introduced to two of them. I think a lot of people mistakenly think, well, Adam and Eve had two sons. And, you know, that doesn't explain where the rest of the people came from, does it? Not very well. But anyway, having said that, at this point, we're introduced to two that were prominent. And, of course, they were two of the elder sons. But still, Cain, Cain was disobedient. Abel was obedient. But they knew that innocent blood must be shed as a condition of forgiveness of sin. They knew this. This was already a principle instructed by God, and it comes up throughout his word. Cain offered something that was considered an unacceptable offering to God, the work of his hands. But Abel offered the first of his flock. So Abel's offering was accepted while Cain was not accepted. And Cain was filled with pride in his own works, which God regards as evil. So this gets us right from the very beginning to the difference between a relationship with God and a religion. Cain was very religious. He decided, well, I'm going to work really hard. The fruit of my hands, the labor of what I've done, the pride of my existence, I'm going to offer that to God. When you take your works and you offer them to God, you're proudly saying, I earned your love. And that's what Cain wanted to do. Abel, on the other hand, recognized you couldn't and obediently offered a lamb, a sacrifice, and was saying, I cannot earn your love. I can only cover my sins the way that you've taught me through the sacrifices of animals. That's all I can do, cover or atone my sin. And in so doing, preach Christ, because eventually the Messiah would come and die on a cross for his sins. So you see the difference This is, it breaks down to this. In the world at that time, you had those that were righteous and those that were evil. And you had two ways to approach God. Through pride and the pride of your own works, like Cain, the way of Cain. And you had Abel, who obediently served God by sacrifice. Today, there are those who will use religion, maybe a different faith, maybe Christianity as a faith, to somehow earn God's approval. And there are those that recognize You can't. That apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And that by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's by faith, not by works. So when we understand that, 
then we can, like Abel, worship God acceptably. Now, Cain was angry. Why was he angry? Because he couldn't worship God on his own terms. Religious people tend to be very angry when you tell them that their religion is useless. You ever notice that? All that stuff you do and all that activity, you know, it's not going to save you. Ah, They get very upset because they're counting on their own works to save them. Cain was very angry. Abel offered that blood sacrifice. Cain offered the work of his hands. Cain had a choice to obey God, but like his own parents, he chose to disobey God. Abel did not. And the Lord warned him, don't give yourself over to the power of sin. You know, sin waits at the door. It's desiring to master you, God warned him. But he gave himself over to sin. And what did he do? He murdered his brother, Abel. They go out into the field and following Satan's example, for the scripture tells us, that Satan was the first murderer and the first sinner. Cain murdered his brother. Cain was judged for disobeying God and taking his brother's life. And so we have the first way that you don't want to walk, but the way that the enemies of the faith will walk, the way of Cain, who was judged for disobeying God and taking his brother's life. Okay, then we're introduced to Balaam. Now, of the three, he's probably the, the second most well-known of the three, okay? Certainly everyone is familiar with Cain and Abel, but Balaam. Balaam was possessed, really, with a desire to be wealthy. He was obsessed with wealth, and he counseled wickedness. He gave advice to make others fall. Now, when you think about the enemies of the faith, you had those that were coming into the church that wanted to destroy the Christians, that destroy the church that Jude is talking about. But then you had those that came in and they wanted to lead others astray. And that's an insidious infiltration of the enemy in the church. Those that enter the church but then teach things that aren't true and lead others toward wickedness. Like someone who would come into the church and their whole reason for being there is to take advantage of a man or a woman or to take advantage of someone, steal money from them, or uh, give themselves over to their lust. Someone whose whole purpose is to, to really promote wickedness and participate in wickedness and drag others down with them. So that's the error of Balaam. We've talked about the way of Cain. Now we talk about the error of Balaam, obsessed with wealth and counseled wickedness. And again, I'm giving you a, a survey of a lot of Scripture, because if we tried to go through these Scriptures like we did when we studied these Scriptures— Each of them alone would be at least one study. But the era of Balaam, Balaam enticed, well, he was enticed, first of all. He was enticed by a man named Balak, who was the king of Moab. And and the king of Moab wanted to curse Israel. He was threatened by Israel. You can read about this in Numbers 22 through 24. The book of Numbers has this entire account. And Balak, he decided, well, there's this guy, Balaam, and he's known to be a prophet, and so we're going to get Balaam to come and to curse the Israelites. So they offered him a handsome reward to come to Moab. Now, he would have done it, but the Lord used a donkey to rebuke and restrain him in his greed. So as it relates to Balaam, Balaam's sin is really greed and also counseling others to do wickedly. Now, the Lord used that donkey to speak to him, and this is why many people are familiar with the account of Balaam. Uh, in Numbers 22, he actually, the Lord spoke through a donkey or allowed the donkey to speak uh, and restrain him from doing the thing that he really wanted to do. He ultimately goes, the Lord allows him to go, but tells him, don't curse my people. And in fairness, Balaam did not. 
He didn't curse the people of Israel. In fact, every time he opened his mouth to bring a curse that Balaam wanted to pay him to do, four times Balaam blessed the children of Israel instead of cursing them. And this is recorded again in chapters 23 through 24 of the book of Numbers. Now, this account is frequently mentioned in Scripture. You may be familiar with it, but Scripture talks about it a lot. In fact, it's talked about in Deuteronomy 23, Joshua 24, even Nehemiah 13 and Micah 6. And that's just the Old Testament. Then you get into the New Testament, and we're discussing it here in Jude, and in other portions of Scripture as well. So that is definitely uh, an account that took place in Israel's history that is referred to frequently. Now, what you do need to know is that Israel later killed Balaam. They killed Balaam because he gave Balak some wicked counsel. He counseled Balak on how to seduce Israel into defying God and disobeying God. He couldn't bless. I mean, he could only bless the Israelites. He couldn't curse them. So what did he do? He counseled Balak with wicked counsel. And we find out about these things uh, in Scripture as we look at the different accounts in Scripture. We find out that they later killed him, and it's recorded in Numbers 31. But you see, the Lord wouldn't allow him to curse Israel, so he, he counseled Balak instead. His counsel was effective in tempting men, the men of Israel, to sin against God. What he basically said is, if you really want to get the men of Israel to sin and for God to curse them, you won't need me to curse them. They'll bring curses down on themselves through disobedience. So what you do is send the Moabite women into the camp, and these women were prostitutes, and send them into the camp and say, here's how we worship our gods, and it would be all types of sexual perversion and immorality. And again, this, is a, this account is recorded in Scripture, and uh, I believe it's Numbers 25. So you can read about all of these things, and, and, and it really gets ugly because it worked. The counsel that Balaam gave to Balak worked. Now, his counsel was effective, and as a result, the Lord judged Israel for their sinful disobedience. So the error of Balaam is that Balaam was judged for, number one, disobeying God, but number two, causing Israel to sin. So as we're comparing the enemies of the faith that we're contending with to this second individual, Balaam, we recognize that, yes, it's true, like the way of Cain, many times people will come into the church and try to destroy us, But there are also those that will come into the church and try to cause us to sin, to drag us down. So that's just two of the three. Let's look at the third. Finally, and this is the least well-known, certainly, of the three, the rebellion of Korah. We have the way of Cain, the era of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. Korah despised God's authority, and he challenged Moses. He decided that he should be in charge. So in Numbers 16, verses 1 through 40, again, you can read this on your own, you get the account of the rebellion of Korah. I will give you a very brief summary. Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and a man named On insolently rose up against Moses and Aaron. They rallied about 250 well-known community leaders to support their cause. So I guess you might say they were community organizers. So they argued that anyone was eligible to serve within the priesthood. Why should only the sons of Aaron be priests? We should be priests as well. They accused Moses and Aaron of self-interest in appointing the priests. They basically said, well, you took the best jobs for yourself. How do we know you should be the priest? Maybe we should be the priests. So 
Moses, when he's confronted with this rebellion, and that's exactly what it was, appealed to the Lord to defend his position of authority against Korah. He challenged them to let the Lord show them who he had chosen to lead. Because Moses and Aaron knew that they had been chosen, but these guys disagreed. They were Levites, and he rebuked them for despising God, their God-given leadership position. They had a leadership position. They just weren't the priests, and they didn't like that. So they defied Moses and Aaron. And what happened here is Moses accused them of trying to take the priesthood from Aaron and his sons. Again, a rebellion. So what did Moses do? Well, he summoned Dathan and Abiram, but they rebelled against him as well. They wouldn't even talk to Moses. They criticized his leadership. They accused him of self-interest. That is, you're crooked, you're corrupt. And then Moses spoke to the Lord concerning them, and he accepted their faith that God was going to judge them. So then Moses challenged Korah, and this is right out of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Not not really, but it it, kind of looks like that if you're familiar with that movie. Uh, Moses challenged Korah and the Levites to face off with Aaron and the priests. The thriller in Manila. Here we go, right? They're going to face off. It's, it, it's, it's going to come down to a, a face off. And they gathered before the Lord right at the t- entrance of the tent of meeting. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to destroy the rebellious assembly. Moses and Aaron, believe it or not, graciously interceded on behalf of the entire assembly. They took their censers out and they, they said, God, be merciful to the people. Be merciful to the people. And, and they were. And so the Lord, the Lord allowed the assembly to move away from these three ringleaders. Okay, so God's gracious. They interceded for the people. And then Korah was judged for disobeying God and challenging his authority. And as we read about it in verses 28 through 40 of uh, Numbers 16, and again, I take the moment this week and read these scriptures I'm sharing so you can get the details. Moses proved his authority, first off, by predicting what was about to happen, the destruction of these men. The Lord caused the earth to swallow them and their households up. Pretty substantial moment. So I said sort of out of the, something out of Hollywood, really, and, but, but really happened. The Lord caused fire to consume the 250 rebellious leaders as well. So these three guys and their households get swallowed up in the earth, and then fire comes down and wipes out the 250 community leaders that supported them. I think it's fair to say that the rebellion was over. Right. And then they took the medal from the censors of these other individuals. where They basically said, okay, you get your censors out, we'll get our censors out, and we'll see who the Lord responds to. So they took the medal from their censors, and they used it, and they, it became a reminder of the priesthood of Aaron. So no one questioned the priesthood of Aaron after that, (laughs) as you can imagine. So all of that's sort of a history lesson from three villains, if you will, of the, uh, more than three, because you had the rebellion of Korah was a cabal. It was a group of individuals. But these three individuals become an example of those that would attack our faith, those that we're contending with, the way of Cain, those that would destroy us or try to kill us, the era of Balaam, those that would cause us to sin, to seduce us to wickedness. And the rebellion of Korah, those that would seek to take a place over us that God hasn't given them, control our lives, or supersede God's authority in our lives. And these are the very types of individuals that the early church was dealing with in the first century. Hey, surprise, surprise, we're still, we're still dealing with people like this, right? We're still dealing with these three types of individuals. Now, as we get to the next section here, 
He's still talking about these wicked men. But now he waxes a little poetic. And I want you to appreciate that he's done history. We looked at those three examples last week and three individuals this week. Now he kind of poetically describes these individuals. And when you're using a poetic description, it's deeper than the literal meanings. Are you with me? You use a metaphor You use something to describe someone because the description is richer than just describing them. He's already described them. Now watch what he does. Jude's got a lot to say about this. In verses 12 through 13, he employs metaphor to describe their lifestyle. And uh, now we go to Jude, back to Jude. Um, He says, these men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds, who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. It actually is very beautiful language. And as we break it into smaller pieces, I want you to see that he's just poetically, even prophetically and practically describing the impact and the effect of these types of individuals on the church. First, let's talk about this word for blemishes. He says your blemishes, they're blemishes that are at your love feast. Listen, blemishes upon an otherwise spotless gathering of saints, there were these individuals could be, who could be described as blemishes. The Greek word for the blemish is the word that's used for a rock in the sea or a ledge or a reef that causes ships to crash and sink. So you have this blemish. It's like a beautiful sea, and then there's this rock. And as the ships hit it, they sink. It's a very rich description of what these blemishes were doing at their love feasts. And by the way, the term love feasts freaks a few people out, because in the pagan world, a love feast was something very different. But they were called agape. They were called the agape. The word for love, Christian love, God's love. And these were fellowship dinners practiced by the early church. So these men would show up and they'd be like a reef or a rock in the midst of this otherwise wonderful gathering. And then everyone would sort of, you know, be shipwrecked by their behavior because they were bringing down people with them. Now, the the agape, as it was called, was held on the Lord's Day. It was essentially a potluck dinner at someone's home. And Paul had addressed problems with these events in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They were very common in the church because they were the Christian version of something that was pagan. They're not bad. They're good things. We do these things often. Gather people together, have a meal together. It's fellowship, communion. It's wonderful. The agape. But if you have someone there who's not really who they're supposed to be, it's, it's sort of an event where they can have a lot of influence and bring down a few people with them. So these men didn't belong in fellowship with the church at the Lord's table. They were nonchalant about their damaging presence at these events. Now, he also calls them shepherds. Shepherds that really weren't shepherds at all, because it's shepherds who only feed themselves. So the Greek word for shepherd means to feed, to tend a flock, or to care for sheep. It's just the word for pastor, but it's also the word for a shepherd who actually watches over sheep. But they really weren't shepherds. They neglected those that they were responsible to care for. You know, if you, we may not be able to relate to raising farm animals. Maybe you grew up in a different part of the country or a different part of the state. 
and maybe you have some experience uh, being on a farm. Uh, but for those of you who have pets, I mean, you have to take good care of your pet, right? You've got to make sure your pet eats and drinks and, you know, gets to the vet once in a while. You have to care for that pet. If you neglected your pet, you wouldn't be a very good pet owner, would you? So as a shepherd, you have to care for the sheep. And they didn't. They neglected the sheep. They were only concerned about themselves. In fact, a really, really bad shepherd would not only neglect the sheep, but when he got hungry, he'd eat the sheep. They're not his sheep. He's supposed to be caring for them for the, for the chief shepherd. But no, wait a minute, for the owner of the sheep, he decides he's hungry. I could really go for lamb tonight. So he decides to go into the flock, maybe say, oh, a wolf got it, you know, and eats one of the sheep. And that very accurately describes the enemies of our faith. They claim to be shepherds, but they're actually feeding off the flock. Pretty sad, right? And that's an accurate description that Jude uses. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 34 talks about the idle shepherd. Woe to the idle shepherd. The shepherd who would be this type of shepherd and feed off the flock and not feed the flock. Okay, he also calls them clouds without rain. And again, a very poetic description. They were clouds that promised rain, but blew away without leaving any precipitation. Now, one thing I can tell you after this summer we had, I'm perfectly content if a cloud comes through and there's no rain. In fact, I consider it a blessing. But if you were a farmer and you were counting on the rain and you saw the clouds and you thought to yourself, oh, great, God is good. We're going to get rain and then not a drop. That'd be a bit disappointing. Would you agree? Clouds without rain. That is, they promised rain, but they blew away without leaving any precipitation. And so these men, these, these wicked men, were as useless to the church as rainless clouds are to a planted field. They promised a lot, but they delivered nothing. At first sight, they promised refreshment, but they ultimately provided nothing at all. They're driven by the storm, not by the truth. They're driven by the storm, but not by the truth. They were self-seeking promoters of every wind of teaching, which is a term that's used in Ephesians. So that's, again, a very poetic but accurate description of the enemies of our faith. It doesn't end there, because then he goes on to use the term autumn trees. Autumn trees. Autumn trees that are dry, leafless, and well past the point of bearing any fruit. Those of you who have fruit trees know that at this point, if you didn't get any apples, well, we're getting close... I think you might still be able to get a few apples, but probably not at this point. If you haven't gotten your apples and your pears and your peaches and your other fruit from trees, at this point, you're probably not going to get any. So by the time we talk about an autumn tree, they're generally dry, leafless, and well past the point of bearing fruit. They were as useless to the church as fruitless trees are to a hungry farmer. That's how he describes the enemies of the faith. Useless to the church as fruitless trees are to a hungry farmer. They were unable to bear fruit because they were actually, as it says, twice dead. And by that, they were uprooted and they were barren. Twice dead because they were fruitless and rootless. And that describes the enemies of our faith. There are two more descriptions here. Wild waves of the sea that bring turmoil and instability. Turmoil and instability. You see, they, were, they brought shamefulness to the church. Just like the waves bring foam and whitewater, 
We live here in the state on the shore, so we, we know we know what waves look like. But when the waves come in, they bring foam and white water. It's talked about here. Uh, they were like storms that brought damage and devastation and debris with them. And they would come and go like the tides, taking whatever they brought with them. All the stuff came in, all the stuff went out. And then they're described as wandering stars. In the Greek, the word is planet. It's the Greek word planetus, the word we use for a planet. And I'll explain why. Wandering stars. Wandering stars brought attention to themselves. They didn't follow the constellations. To the ancient eye, you'd look up and you'd see these stars that didn't follow the rest of the constellations. They kind of did their own thing. They were called planets or wandering stars. Stars that wander across the night sky and then disappear. Now, the ancients considered them wanderers, and that's what they called them, wanderers. Some of them thought they were the gods, so they ultimately named them after some of the gods. They followed the Earth's ecliptic, which is the rotation, uh, and they seemed to wander through the sky. They couldn't figure them out because they didn't follow the rest of the stars. They weren't stars at all. They were, in fact, planets. And they didn't really completely understand that, but they knew that there was something different about them. So he calls them this, planets or wandering stars. They were also like shooting stars that briefly appear only to fade into the darkness, if you've ever seen a shooting star. And their eternal judgment, the eternal judgment of these men, these enemies of the faith that are described as wandering stars, would be the same fate as those objects in the sky that just sort of go into darkness. In fact, the picture that is depicted here when he says of these wandering stars, that the blackest darkness has been reserved, they they, they are wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever, that wording comes directly from, or the picture comes directly from, another apocryphal book. We've talked about a few in this this, uh, letter. We've talked about some of the apocryphal writings. It's a book called the Apocryphal Book of Enoch, and in Enoch chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, it is not a biblical book. It is a apocryphal book. Uh, That is, it is literature of the time that Jude was familiar with. Uh, This description comes from that book, and so obviously he is familiar with this book of Enoch. The book has many stories about stars and angels, and stars and angels uh, are sometimes identified with each other. That's even true in the scripture. And those who were disobedient to God sort of left their orbit and their place, and you can read all about that in the book of Enoch. And I don't know what it is, but people who like to study the scriptures, and they're kind of looking for something else, always love to read the book of Enoch. Uh, it's kind of weird. It's very much mythology. It's interesting. I read it. it it's not scripture in the least. Uh, there's nothing in it you can really trust other than it is interesting to read. Now, those who were disobedient to God are talked about in there, and those that were disobedient are bound in an eternal darkness forever, according to the book of Enoch. So that's the language he's using. Now, let me explain. It doesn't mean that what he's saying isn't true. He's using poetry and myth to describe the destination, and the fate of the enemies of our faith. Okay? Are you with me? Does that make sense? You know, if I said, yeah, he's like Superman, you know, you you would say, oh, I understand what you're saying, but that doesn't mean I believe that Superman exists, right? Okay. So it's that kind of thing, all right? So he then goes on in verses 14 to 15 to directly quote from this book. That was sort of a picture from the book. This is a direct quote. In verses 14 through 15 after having described these wicked people as blemishes, shepherds, clouds that promised rain, autumn trees, wild waves of the sea, and planets or wandering stars. 
He goes on to say this, Enoch, in verse 14, the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You think Jude is trying to tell us that they're ungodly? I mean, he says it a few times, right? So what we're reading here is a prophecy that comes from this book of Enoch, quoting Enoch. Uh, Enoch chapter 1, verse 9 is where you'll find the prophecy. It doesn't mean the rest of the book is true. It doesn't even mean that this prophecy is necessarily a real prophecy. He just uses it to make his point, using literature to make his true point. Enoch prophesied concerning the coming judgment of the Lord in this book, and he describes an army of innumerable holy ones or saints. Now, it just so happens that when you read the book of Revelation in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, that that prophecy is probably true because a very similar account in prophecy is given to us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. So I would say maybe the rest of the book isn't true, but that one prophecy may have been from a prior source may have actually been the truth. The purpose, their purpose is to judge everyone and convict all of the ungodly. So when Christ comes again and we come with him, that's what we can expect to happen. All of their ungodly acts will be judged. Amen. Their ungodly lifestyle will be judged. Amen. Their harsh words spoken against the Lord will be judged. Amen. And as ungodly sinners, they would surely be judged by the Lord. And that's what he's telling us. That's what Jude wants us to take away from what he's saying here and quoting from Enoch. Now, he uses the word ungodly four times in two verses. I can relate because if I were going to describe the world that we live in at the moment, there probably isn't a better word than ungodly. And he goes out of his way to make it clear. That's the issue. We're living in an ungodly world. We are godly people living in an ungodly world. So there is a great contrast between us and the enemies of our faith. They're ungodly. We're godly. Are we perfect? No. We love God. We're righteous because of him because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. But we're godly because of that sacrifice, made righteous in him. The ungodly are those that reject that sacrifice and become enemies of the faith, which we've been talking about now for two weeks. Actually, longer than that. We started three weeks ago. So all of that really just brings us to a place where we recognize that though he quotes a non-inspired literary source to declare the spiritual truth and the scriptural truth, Understand, if you're going to put any stock in this book of Enoch, because I don't know what it is, especially guys for some reason get really excited about this book, there are at least three apocryphal books that are attributed to Enoch. So which is the right one? Maybe none of them. We don't really know. Uh, They may have even preserved certain elements of the truth of the prophecies. But these books were actually written shortly before the time of Christ. This we know. So again, don't put too much, don't put any stock in them actually. To quote them as literature is one thing, to quote them as scripture is something entirely different. Paul used a very similar approach when he was speaking to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. He quoted their prophets. He spoke to them from literature, things they were familiar with. He spoke of the, the unmovable mover, which was Aristotle's concept of God. 
and the unmovable mover, the unknown God. That's what the Greeks called Aristotle's understanding of God, the unmovable mover. That is, you, you, you couldn't know him, but he created all things. That's essentially what Aristotle believed. Paul used that language to speak to the Athenians because that's what they believed. And he said, the God you don't know, that's actually the God I serve. And you could see why that would be a very good way to approach it. Well, the Jewish believers in the early church would have been familiar with this book of Enoch. They knew it. They read it. They, they knew it well. But remember, and I want to be clear about this, because some of you guys are already going on Amazon right now, and you're starting to put it in your cart. The book of Enoch is nothing more than a fable that contains this prophecy. If you do read it, please don't let it stumble your faith. That wasn't Jude's intent. That's not mine either. Now, as we close our study for tonight in verse 16, this is a really great, straightforward description of the enemies of our faith. And then next week we'll talk about something else. In verse 16, it says, These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So that's a really accurate description of these enemies of our faith. This is talked about in 2 Peter as well. These are the specific sins they practice. So how do you recognize the enemies of your faith? Here's, here's five descriptions that you can take home with you. Okay, you ready? First, grumblers. A grumbler is a murmurer that discontentedly complains against God. Someone that's always blaming God for everything. If you know anybody like that, that's the kind of person we're talking about. A fault finder is a complainer that discontentedly complains about his life. Woe is me. Something's always wrong with their lives. Following your own evil desires, as described here, is a person that craves or longs for what is forbidden. That is a person who lusts. So you have people that complain against God, people that complain about their life, and people that lust or desire that which is forbidden. Those that boast about themselves are those that speak great and extravagant things about themselves, but basically they're just filled with ego. And that's another way to describe these enemies of our, of our faith. They're all about themselves. Finally, you have those that flatter others for their own advantage. These are those that admire others, but only in order to use them for their own purposes. People that come up and say, oh, you play the guitar so well. But really, they want you for something. You know, it's amazing. Over the years, I've learned to recognize that. Someone will come up and they'll say, oh, you know, pastor... And then I'm like, okay, where's this going? And they start telling me how great I am. And I realize right, right away, only the devil be telling me how great I am. God knows the truth. My wife knows the truth. My good friends and family know the truth. So I, I, my ears go up and I get into a place where I'm like, you know what? Let me just take this with a grain of salt. The other day, someone told me what a great dancer I was at the wedding. And it was the woman behind the bar. And I got a little nervous. Why would somebody going out? I mean, I'm not that good looking. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, what's this all about? So I very graciously, thank you so much, I said. Thank you so much. I just, I, you know, sort of, I, I get very uncomfortable when people compliment me because I'm not sure what they're really up to. Sometimes people are just complimenting you, and it's very nice. Generally, though, you should second guess those things. Trust me. So there's a description of the enemies of our faith. And, and just sort of to sum it up again, we talked about the grumblers, the fault finders, those that follow their own evil desires, those that boast about themselves, and those that flatter others for their own advantage. That pretty much describes those people within the church, even today, and unfortunately many church leaders and pastors, 
who are looking to take advantage of you. We need to contend for the faith. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful description, this very accurate description that helps us to recognize our enemy. We now commit to you our hearts and our lives. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to know the truth, that we might be prepared and not taken at unawares, not surprised. May we be prepared to contend for the faith and recognize our enemy. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.